chapter 1, so if I could give us a quick recap. The book of Philippians was written by a guy named Paul. He wrote about half the New Testament, and Paul was a man that just loved Jesus. Paul had a huge view of Jesus, and it was his passion to see as many people as possible know who Jesus is. And so the motto of Paul's life is to live as Christ and to die as gain. And if you were here last week, you saw an amazing uh, passage where Paul just kind of laid that out. And that's what he was all about. And so Philippians is a letter that he wrote to a church in a city called Philippi. And if you um, have read much of the Bible before, you'll notice that uh, the tone that Paul uses in this letter compared to maybe some of the other ones is uh, incredibly positive, thankful, grateful. That's because this church was comprised of people that he would call his teammates. Like from the get-go, these guys were on, on his side. Like they were contending with Paul for the gospel. And so you see a lot of warmth in this letter. And in fact, the first um, really 26 verses, Paul's kind of giving them an update on how he's doing. And if you were here last week, like part of the update was that Paul's in prison. And so if you're Paul's friend in Philippi and you're getting this letter and you knew he was in prison, you're probably thinking, oh, poor Paul, I bet he's really upset and I bet he's really bummed he's in prison. And actually he just kind of flips that and he goes, you know what, it's awesome I'm in prison because if, if you guys talked about it probably a couple weeks ago, but as Paul's in prison, he's being chained to a different prison guard like every four to six hours. They were changing shifts. And so if you're chained to Paul, guess what you're going to hear a lot of? You're going to hear a lot of Jesus. And so these guards are hearing about Jesus and then... Uh, what's happening is that the gospel is spreading through this elite guard, the Praetorian guard. One way we know that it's spreading is at the end of Philippians, there's a comment that Paul makes where he's sending greetings from people, and he says, uh, the believers from the household of Caesar send you greetings. You go, wait, how did the household of Caesar get the gospel? Well, it's because these prison guards are chained to Paul, and then they go when they are on shift in uh, Caesar's house. They're there talking about Jesus too. So so for, for about four years now, Paul has been in prison. And you would think, wow, he must be really discouraged. He must be disappointed. He's like, no, man, he was so about Jesus being in charge of his life and about the gospel that Paul would take advantage of any opportunity he was at to spread the gospel. So that's, that's who we're talking about here. And so what we're going to see in today's passage is that he, up until now, he's been kind of giving them an update. And, it, and it's an incredibly motivating update. You see Paul being rejoicing in prison and all that. But now he's going to kind of put on a coach's hat. And he loves these people, but he's going to now start directing them to even further uh, fruitful living. Like, so he loves them. They're not, he's not scolding, but he's going to try to fire them up. And so um, let me just read our four verses we're going to look at today, and then we'll dive into them together. And I think they'll be up on the screen here too, so you can follow along. So Paul says this in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So let me pray for us, and we'll just allow Paul to kind of coach us this morning, too. Like, Paul, what would you say to us if we want to be a church that extends, extends the gospel? What do you, how would you coach us? Let me pray, and then we'll dig into this. So, uh, Father, thank you for, for your word, and I thank you that um, we get to look into the life 
of a guy like Paul that you just use so powerfully. But yet, the whole point of this isn't how amazing Paul is. The point here is, Jesus, how amazing you are and what you have done for us and what you can do through us as we uh, truly uh, live lives that are worthy of the gospel. So teach us what that means today. And not just so we know in our heads, but so that we know in our hearts and we live like a church uh, that really understands the gospel and how awesome you are, Jesus. So talk to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the key phrase to really understand all four of these verses is that first phrase where he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So imagine like when he says only, imagine he's holding up like one finger and he's saying like, guys, out of everything you need to know, you need to get this. Like this is crucial. And so, so the one thing he wants them to understand is that he's encouraging them to live a life live in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Like, guys, this is crucial. And so let's break that down a little bit about what that means to live a life worthy of the gospel. So first of all, don't think this. Like, don't think, like, um, that this is something you earn or attain, because that's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinful people like us, and that's a, that's a good thing. So he's not saying, you know, that this is something you better earn, you better earn this status of being worthy of the gospel. Like, if that was the case, nobody could do this. Like, we do not, we are not worthy of the gospel on our own, but what he's saying here is live in ways that you make the, make the gospel look amazing, that, that to you the gospel is worth everything. Like, live in that way. And so, so let's just get that clear right away. It's not like, well, I guess I can't live in a manner that way. Actually, you can. Like, if you've embraced the gospel, Jesus is now in you, and he can, he can allow you to live in a way that will make the gospel look good through your life, okay? So, so but what's really interesting is that phrase, like, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, um, literally meant be a good citizen, be good citizens, and that concept of citizenship was huge in Philippi because they had the privilege of being a, uh, a Roman colony. Like, even though they weren't a part of geographically Rome, they as a city were, were anointed the privilege of being Roman citizens. That had so many benefits. So that phrase, like, live as a good citizen, meant a ton to them. But, it, but the way they applied it as a city was to, the, to be part of the Romans. Like, it was amazing what an honor to be considered part of the Roman Empire. Like one of the perks was you didn't have to pay taxes. That's, that's a pretty good one this time of year. We're starting to get our taxes ready, right? So, but there were many perks. And so that phrase about being a good citizen was very common around Philippi. But now Paul's just elevating that and saying, you know, as, as cool as it is on a human level to be a part of Rome, like you now have the privilege of being a part of something far greater than the Roman Empire. In fact, if I can cheat ahead a couple of chapters in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Like this is, uh, he's, he's elevating the concept, like guys, you are now citizens of heaven because of what Jesus has done for you. You have an amazing identity. Like you are not just Roman citizens, but now you are citizens of heaven because of Jesus. Like this, this if it's worth living worthy lives as a Roman, let's just escalate that and say, what if we lived worthy lives of the gospel? Like what if you saw your identity as much, much higher? And so, um, one of my favorite parts in Philippians that I've caught this time through that I wouldn't is, um, and sometimes we skip these parts of the Bible, 
But I don't know if you remember, in the first verse of the letter to the Philippians, Paul said this. He said he identified himself as a servant, and he called, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, and he said to them, and you are saints in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about our identity in both contexts. One is, like when he called them saints in Christ Jesus, you, you, uh, that, that would apply to us too. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. And you might go, whoa, saint? That's a big deal, isn't it? Like, isn't that like only for a few elite people that can attain sainthood? It's like, actually, no, saint meant a holy one, one who's called by God, who belongs to God, who's useful to God. And all of that is because of Jesus. Jesus died for sinners like us. And so he trades our identity. We go from being sinners when we put our faith in Christ, and then he gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, if we're in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And so he's telling these Philippians, and it's true for us this morning too, that if your faith is in Jesus, God looks at you and you are a saint. Like you are his people. You're like you are ready to be used by him. You are set apart. You are righteous in his eyes. And so so you hear some of that, and you might start, you know, sticking your chest out and going, wow, I'm pretty good. I'm a saint. But then did you notice how Paul identified himself? He's a servant of Christ Jesus. Like so, and you look at how Paul lives his life. It wasn't for Paul. It wasn't for like what he thought. He gave his life for Jesus. Like he saw how amazing Jesus' agenda is. Jesus' agenda is way better than Paul's agenda or Doug's agenda or your agenda. And so Paul saw himself as, you know, we, we called it a couple weeks ago at Central Campus being on Team Jesus, like that, that Jesus gives us that honor of wearing his jersey and representing him. And so you put those two concepts together of being a saint and a servant. I like calling that godly swagger. Like the way that you can live your life here is the confidence that you are a child of God. You've been rescued from sin by Jesus, that God looks at you as holy and useful to him. But you don't go puffing that up on yourself or looking down on others. You're then called to be a servant with that status. And so that's a whole new way to live. And so living in a manner worthy of the gospel is living out your new identity in Jesus Christ as a saint and a servant. And, you know, one thing that, that I try to keep thinking of I meet with a men's group on Tuesday mornings or even at our church on Sunday, like just trying to picture you guys like, like this is our huddle. And so when church is over, we break huddle and you guys are going like it is so cool just to think about all the places you guys are going in our city, like in the, this afternoon, tomorrow, you know, the schools uh, where you work and your neighborhoods that really you are going as representatives of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul would say, you know what, guys, out of number one, the most important thing is as you break huddle here, live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Live out your identity as, as saints and servants. And that's, that's kind of his big, big push here. Live with that godly swagger. So it's not about you, but you're living with confidence and boldness because God has you. And then you're living humbly. You're serving the people around you. You're living lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so, um, my lighting's a little different up here than I'm used to, so I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit off. So, um, about a little head cold today, too, so I'm a little Dayquil-ish up here. So, it'll, it'll come, it'll come, so we're fine. Uh, so, but again, what a privilege. Um, so, um, Zach's back there this morning. Zach had the privilege, he coaches at Williamsburg. He had the privilege of coaching Austin Blythe when Austin like, was in high school Williamsburg. And Austin Blythe, if you don't know, is playing in the Super Bowl today. A kid from Williamsburg is playing in the Super Bowl for the Rams today. And so 
Uh, imagine, you know, uh, it was fun hearing Zach talk about him the other day, that even as a freshman, like this kid was really big and all that, but was incredibly agile and a good, good coachable kid. Like you could just tell this kid was destined for something. And from everything I hear, he's like a really good guy. He does a lot of philanthropic things around the area and all that. So it's really cool to pull for a guy like that. But like, just imagine like the privilege and honor. You would think like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be Austin Blythe today? To get to walk out and represent the Rams. Like wear the Rams jersey, play in the Super Bowl and all that. Or you talk to former Iowa players about what it was like to walk out of that tunnel at Kinnick, you know, and to wear the, the colors and have all the fans like cheering for you. I, I can just promise you, you're just trying to elevate what the worthy walk is that you're invited to. When Jesus comes back, like, there aren't going to be a lot of people in that day talking about, hey, remember Tom Brady and how awesome he was? Or do you remember the Hawkeyes in Kinnick Stadium? Like, none of that is even going to be anywhere close to everybody's mind because they're going to see Jesus, you know, and it's when Jesus comes back, that honor and privilege that you have been given today. Jerseys are flying around this room today with Team Jesus, and it's not about your name on the back. It's about his name on the front, and you are called to live a life worthy of the gospel, like worthy of what Jesus has done for you. And so that's kind of the nuance that's going on here. And so then the passage gives us three ways. Okay, so then what are three specific ways Paul has in mind for us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, to live with this godly swagger? Uh, So the first is to live undeterred lives, to be undeterred, to stand firm. So he says, only let your lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The Greek word literally meant just to to hold your ground. It was a military term that meant that you could not be pushed off your spot. And as we go through Philippians, um, maybe Josh has already told you that Philippi was was a big military outpost. And so a lot of the town had military connections. And you'll see a lot of military analogies and allusions through here. So here's one of them. Like it's basically hold your ground. Stand firm, whether against opposition or against persecution. Stand strong. And so you might say, well, what kind of opposition were these guys facing? And I did a little research this week that to be a Christian in Philippi was a very difficult calling. Like you would be persecuted in many ways, not just with ridicule or isolation that we might get here today, but even there could be economic input or uh, impact on you that if you did not declare allegiance to Caesar, like if you declared allegiance to Jesus, not Caesar, that could impact you. You could get sent to jail. You could be killed for that. You could uh, suffer economically for that. You could lose a job for that. And so for these guys to be told to stand firm, this wasn't just kind of, you know, a side thought. Like this is front and center for them. Am I really going to stand for Jesus? So he says, yes, stand. And so if you look through the New Testament, you go, well, then how do we stand? And what, what would you say were the pushes against you, like, to truly stand? Like, is it, is it hard for you to stand for Christ when everybody at work is talking about other stuff or making fun of Christians or, you know, talking about a totally different lifestyle than you live? Like, when is it hard for you to take a stand? And it's so clear that when you look in the Bible, you're not supposed to just take a stand from your own resources. Like, okay, I'll just try harder. I'll do, I'll do better this time. Like, instead, God has equipped you with many ways that you can stand firm in your identity as a servant and a saint. Like, so what are some of those ways? Um, some of them are God's promises to you. Like, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, be strong and courageous for I am with you. That's a common theme you see throughout the Bible. Um, There's one I think that Paul's alluding to here is that God has given you the Holy Spirit. 
And the spirit God has given you uh, is a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Isn't that pretty cool? So like whatever you need to stand strong, uh, power, love, self-control. So you think of courage, you think of compassion to the people that are pushing against you, and self-control, that your lifestyle doesn't get changed, doesn't get knocked off of what God has called you to do. So in other words, you stand firm, not just from your own resources, because good luck, you're just going to get mowed over, right? So, but you stand strong with what God has given you through his spirit, through his presence, through his promises. You look at Ephesians 6, for example, that's a place where it talks about the armor of God to stand strong uh, with the sword of the spirit. So God's word is a good way to, to stand strong. And so um, I do that practically too. Like if I, this is my moleskin, I've got I read the Bible, try to read the Bible every day, and then just kind of take some notes. And I've got pages in here where if I'm going through a struggle or just a battle in having confidence or in, um, I have pages in here, I just call them audacious prayers. Like I'll just write big things for God to do. But like if I feel like I'm getting pushed around in some area, I'll just, I'll just sit down on one side, just write the lies that I'm hearing in my head, maybe the stuff that keeps you up at night. And then on the other side, I'll just write down the promises that God has said to me, and I attack those lies uh, with truth that comes from the Bible. And so those are hopefully some practical ways that, that you can learn from as well. Like, how do we stand firm in our thoughts and our motives and our, and, and our joy and our incentive to follow Jesus? So, so walk in a manner worthy by, by standing firm. And then he goes on, and another way is to stand um, undivided, so standing together. So he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so again, this is another one of those military terms about almost like just marching in rank, like just side by side with your fellow soldiers, you are going to battle together. It's not just you alone doing this, it's you with, with others doing this. And so a good thing to note here is that Paul doesn't call us to uniformity. Like he's not calling that everybody here has to uh, look the same in every area, think the same, have the same gifts, have the same abilities. Like if you look at Team Jesus, it's, it's, a, it's a team of variety, a variety of gifts and backgrounds and experiences. But it is a team that is uniform in, it is united in mission. And so what Paul would say here is the unity and mission is the gospel, that we strive side by side for the gospel. So we have one agenda. It's not like Doug's agenda, Josh's agenda, North Campus agenda, Central, East, um, this person, this family, that family. Like the one agenda that drives all of us is the gospel, like what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus wants to do through us. So that's that's, that's the agenda here. So um, I think there's a picture. It's going to go up there. The Roman army at that time had this formation that was uh, pretty awesome. Like, so every soldier would get a shield and would get, uh, and different ones of them would get different sized spears. And so they would have a formation where, as you can see, like if all the soldiers are working together, you've got this front that protected them from incoming arrows as all the shields came together. But then also, and I don't know if that picture kind of picks it out, but uh, they had some formations where these long spears would come from between the shields. And then that whole thing would just move forward in attack. 
And so it took armies a long time to figure out how to beat something like that. When you get a whole bunch of people protected with the same shield and with the sword sticking out, they would just run over armies, okay? And so, and so that's kind of a picture, again, that when Paul's saying striving together for the gospel, that kind of imagery would come to their mind in, in Philippi, a military outpost again. They would say, okay, that's, that's what that looks like. And what a beautiful picture when, again, not to go and slaughter people, like that's not what we're called to do, but, but standing together with the gospel, that the gospel is advancing as we're with each other side by side. So nowhere in the Bible is Christianity called to be a solo effort. It's not like you go out and do the best you can by yourself. It's like it's always, it's always a corporate movement. It's we. We're called a body of Christ. And in my terminology, it's team Jesus. It's not just you doing your thing, but it's contending together as one for the sake of the gospel. And so that was so important uh, to Paul. It was so important to Jesus, too. Let me, let me read you some things Jesus said uh, right before he was arrested and crucified. He's praying to his father in John 17, and Jesus uh, has been praying for his disciples. But then look at John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I don't ask for these only, so I'm not only praying for my disciples, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Can we pause for a second? That's, that's you and me right there. Jesus is praying for us. Who is going to believe in Jesus through the words of the disciples? That, that's us, folks. So if you ever want to see what Jesus prayed for you specifically, look right here. I pray for those who believe through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Uh, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Is he, is he like going back to that over and over again? Yes, he is. Why? He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So, I mean, Jesus connected the dots for us here. He wants us to live as a united people. And you ask, well, why? He says, well, that's how the world is going to know that Jesus has come. That's how the world is going to know that we are a different people because we're doing this together. We're not scattered about doing our own thing as, as individuals, but that we are called together corporately. That's evidence to this world that God is moving. If you see a team of people as diverse as we are, and as you look throughout the world, the diversity of Christianity is amazing. The different backgrounds and cultures and countries and languages where we have people worshiping Jesus. Uh, when you see that diverse a group of people contending as one person for the gospel, that turns people's heads. And so that's why this is such a big deal to, God, to Paul. You know, live a life worthy of the gospel by contending together, standing together for the gospel. So um, maybe uh, some of you have had uh, the privilege to take your family somewhere outside of Iowa where they actually have wildlife, you know, and so like more wildlife than we tend to have. And so we've been to Yellowstone and we've been some places out west. I just do, I have a bad track record as a dad, though, of finding like the big five, they call them, right? Isn't it like bear, moose? elk, I forget the other big cougar, mountain lion, like whatever. So whatever the big five are, I, I think we've struck out on all five. Like I think the biggest we've had is maybe a, one of those longhorn sheep. 
don't know, is that like 15? Like we'll see plenty of 30 and 40, like squirrels and deer and stuff like that. But I can, I'm a good dad at finding that kind of thing. But, but especially if you're like a desperate dad like me and you're driving somewhere like through Yellowstone and you see like a whole bunch of people pulled off the side of the road, you just, just you don't even think. You just go, we're going there. Like everybody's looking at something. It must be awesome. You know, but even when we've gotten there, it's like, oh, you should have just seen it. Man, there's like three bears just walked right through here. It's like, great, we missed it. So, but, um, so just like when you see people stopped and pulled over to look at something, that's what, that's what Christians contending together looks like to this world. Like if they see all of us like enthralled about the same thing or worshiping Jesus on Sundays, going to our homes, studying about Jesus during the week in our community groups, um, that, and they see us living different lives because of Jesus, like that, that turns heads when you see a whole group of people moving toward something. And that's, that's what, what Paul is urging them to. The way you live a life worthy of the gospel is that as a group, you guys are all amazed at how awesome and glorious uh, Jesus is. So, so we uh, stand firm. We stand together. And then the last one here this morning is that we uh, suffer well, that we are unafraid, that we suffer well. This probably isn't my favorite point, but listen to what Paul says. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You know, I think um, we are victims of American Christianity because when I have traveled and met Christians from other cultures and countries, I usually don't hear them complaining about suffering, even though when I look at their situation, they are suffering like way more than we are. But it's almost like there's an expectation of American and maybe Western European Christianity that because we're Christians, it should go easier for us. And I, um, I prefer that model as well. Like, I prefer that everything go really well for me, that I just be very successful. My family, everything is successful that we do. Everything is just perfect, so that everybody will come and say, wow, how did you achieve that? And I can say, well, it was through Jesus, you know? Like, that's a, and there are people that God, to, you know, it's always cool after, like, big events like the Super Bowl, when there are Christians that just point to Jesus, like, that he helped them. But it's also true, and it's maybe more often true, when you look through the Bible, that God tends to glorify himself through his people as they suffer, okay? I mean, after all, look at the one we're following. Look at the one who is our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus. In fact, in John 15, 20, uh, he said this, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will... uh, they will also keep yours. So uh, it shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, there's several verses that say, don't be surprised when suffering comes upon you. And uh, again, my preference is, help me succeed and I'll tell everybody about you, Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, okay, that's nice. I may do that at times, but there's also going to be times, Doug, where you are going to suffer and I'm calling you to suffer well. I'm calling you to suffer as one who has hope. I'm calling you to suffer as a saint and a servant. And so Paul's our classic example of that, that when he was in prison, did he complain and grumble and whine again for four years? A guy like Paul's put on a sideline when he could be out doing ministry, but God used that suffering in Paul's life to point 
people to the gospel. And so, and so the, the challenge there, I think you saw it in verse 29, is that, is that uh, Paul said it's for our sake, it's uh, been granted to us, it's been given to us, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer. Like it's, it's a gift. And I have a hard time seeing that as a gift initially, but it's, it helps when you see that the one we follow, that Jesus through his suffering, God did amazing things uh, through his suffering. Next week's passage is beautiful, just showing the depths to which Jesus suffered, but then the heights to which God raised him, that, that the gospel is often spread through uh, the suffering of, of God's people. I had a guy that um, was maybe when I first met him, maybe the, a guy who was about as far away from God as anybody maybe I've talked to for a while, but he came to me in a broken moment in his life, and it's so that for about nine months or a year, we were just reading the gospel together, and he was getting closer and closer to God. He was the kind of guy that on his, in his office, he would have a Bible there because we were reading it, and somebody would come in who knew his old life, and they would see a Bible sitting there, and they'd just go, like, and they go, um, are you dying or something? Like, why, why do you have a Bible in your desk? He's like, no, actually, I'm reading it with a pastor. And like, after they'd pass out, he'd revive them and say, no, actually, I am, you know? And, and so, uh, amazing guy. And we got to see him come closer and closer uh, to Jesus. But then I went through probably one of the hardest things I've gone through in my life. And he was one guy when a lot of people seemed to just kind of step away. He was one guy that stepped forward and walked with me and my family uh, for about three months. And um, at the end of that time, <laughs> this, was, this was wild. He said, you know what? You were teaching me a lot about Jesus in those nine months, and I was learning a lot, but, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. you. You taught me way more these last three months than you did in those first nine. And I, I had no idea. Like, I thought, I mean, those three months were, like, just sad and hard. And, and he said, you know, I used to think guys like you were Teflon. Like, nothing bad ever happened to you guys. But when I saw what you went through, he's like, I saw more of Jesus than I did in those first nine months. And so that's, again, I, I would not have said that. I would not have thought that that was the case. Um, but that's what happened in that man's life. And I just wonder if that's not true. As the people in your life are watching you, the people who know that you are a believer, like how, not just how you handle your success, or not just when we talk about how great everything is in our lives, but I wonder if they're not just drawn in more real ways when they see us suffer, when they see us walk through adversity. And how do we do that? And we do that, uh, we can suffer well uh, because we know who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and that he can use even our suffering to, to extend the gospel. So let me just wrap up. Let me just wrap up with this. That um, one thought here that uh, a scared Christian, I said this to our folks last Sunday, uh, a scared Christian should be an oxymoron. You know what that means? Like jumbo shrimp. Uh, whatever, you fill in your own. So, but a scared Christian shouldn't, shouldn't be the case. That if we've, and, but I'll be the first to say I get scared, okay? So I'm not saying like you, sh- you, you should be flawless like me. But really when you think about it, we, a scared Christian is an oxymoron. Like we are so cared for, loved by God. And even when we are suffering and going through hard times, he's there, he's with us, and he's using those moments. Like that's a time for us to cling to this Team Jesus jersey, that he is walking me through this because he's going to show himself to us. Paul says that in chapter 3, that when he suffers, he gets to experience Jesus in deeper ways. So look for that, but also the gospel can go powerfully from your life when you suffer. So, so um, we should not be afraid. God is in charge. God loves us. God's not going anywhere. He is totally with us. So my big takeaway for us North Campus today 
is, I got two questions. One would be, um, are, we, are we truly, like if there's one thing we're living for out here, can we say that one thing is the gospel? Can we say that one thing? Not just doing church, not just like being busy, uh, not just this program or that program or uh, these people, that people, but are we truly as one movement moving? Is the gospel preeminent? Like is that what this is about? The gospel in us and then the gospel through us. Like do we have people in mind that we're praying for that we would love for them to see the gospel? And are we aware of areas in our lives that we need more of the gospel to, to set us free, to be saints and servants, all right? So that's question one. Is the gospel truly number one out here? And the second one is, I hope you're hearing this, you'll hear it next week too, is that we're not meant to do this alone. Like we're not meant to do this solo. Like this is a community, this is a team effort. And so I know many of you are in community groups and I hear good things about groups that are forming, um, but make sure that you're doing this with others, not just even, not just one marriage or one family, but make sure you're bonding and locking arms with people because to stand strong, you're gonna need each other. There's times where, or it's going to be hard, or times when you're suffering, you need people around you praying for you, encouraging you, um, and, and you need people in your life to make sure you're staying focused on the gospel. So, so the two takeaways is, is the gospel preeminent in here, in your life? And then second, who are your teammates? Like, who are you doing this with?